Email clients are like web browsers in like the 90s. <laughs> but everybody was doing their own thing and like, that's kind of like what email, they've got a lot better, but like when you're still supporting older email clients, that's kind of what it's like. You do all these weird hacks for like one specific email client that was released 10 years ago. Hello, and welcome to Talking Email with Postmark. I'm your host, Merrick Loader, and in today's episode, my guests, Matt West and Derek Rushforth, both tenured designers here at Postmark, will share real-life examples of how we've approached designing and testing templates here at Postmark. We'll look closely at some recent changes we've made to our transactional email templates and touch on key considerations and important lessons we've learned along the way. In sharing our own experiences with template design, we hope that you'll come away with some ideas on how you can improve your own transactional email templates for your business or side project. Hope you enjoy the episode. Thank you guys for joining me today. Hey, Merrick. Thanks for having us on. Let's maybe start out with some quick intros. Matt, you're a self-taught designer and spent the early part of your career freelancing and working for web agencies. Can you briefly tell us about your early days as a designer and what ultimately led you to Postmark? Sure. So, um, yeah, after leaving school, I I spent about five years mainly freelancing, doing web design and and development. and then I kind of got to a point where I wanted to join a bit of a bigger team. So when I worked at an agency um, and spent 18 months there, mainly doing front end work, actually, um, and then kind of came to the realization that code's great and I enjoy writing code, but actually where I get my most satisfaction is through design. So that's when I, I started looking for a position that would allow me to do design full time. And that's um, when Wildbit came up. and. I mean, I've been here about two and a half years now working on Postmark, and it's been tremendous fun. So, um, yeah, it's been brilliant. Wonderful. And Derek, prior to joining the Postmark team, you served as a U.S. Marine and spent some time in Afghanistan. Tell us about your less traditional path to front-end web design and how you got connected with Postmark. Yeah, so um, right out of high school, uh, I went to art school for a little bit, uh, but I ended up dropping out to join the Marines. Um, wow. I spent about six. <laughs> I spent about uh, six years enlisted uh, with one tour to Afghanistan. Um, I got to try a lot of different jobs, especially while I was deployed. Um, but it just I wasn't something I wanted to make a career out of. So most of my enlistment was spent in the reserves, uh, which means I wasn't obligated to be on duty full time. Uh, so throughout my enlistment, I had the opportunity to work for a couple agencies where I did everything from marketing websites, email marketing campaigns, and web apps. Uh, it was really helpful for me because uh, it just kept me interested in design and coding, and I was able to just kind of learn a lot from it. Um, then later on, I found myself wanting to transition to product work, and I came across the job posting from Wildbit, and it looked awesome. So I submitted my resume, and, and yeah, that was five years ago, and it's been great. Well, we're certainly lucky to have both of you guys uh, with us at Postmark, and I certainly love working with, with each of you. So. Um, Thanks for that. All right. Well, thanks for joining us, guys. Let's let's maybe jump in and get us talking email. To give our listeners some context, just a few weeks ago, we redesigned a number of transactional email templates for Postmark, which was ultimately the inspiration for this episode. Matt, you worked on this project. Could you start by telling us which emails were redesigned? Oh, sure. So, well, a ton of them. Um, <laughs> basically, yeah. <laughs> Um, we, we touched almost all of the, the emails that we send out through our um, Rails application. So most of our um, 
emails that customers received from us got at least some sort of update. Some were updated more than others. Um, but yeah, it was a pretty big project. So. Okay. We're going to touch on uh, that project. And before we jump into, you know, kind of the why and, and how we, we approached uh, the redesign, I just want to make sure that um, we're all familiar with this concept of transactional email. Derek, can you maybe just speak to what a transactional email is and how it's different from, let's say, a, a marketing email or an email sent from a local mail client? Sure. So a transactional email is triggered by a user's action. Um, this can be either through like a web or a mobile app. A good example is a password reset email, um, account activation, or uh, a comment notification. And people typically expect these to arrive at their inbox. So by nature, they're time sensitive. Uh, most people generally don't want to like sit around waiting for forever for a password reset email to, to arrive. Uh, whereas marketing emails typically consist of newsletters or any type of like promotional email. Uh, in most cases, a bunch of other people receive a copy of the same email um, since these are generally sent to large lists. Okay, so transactional email is really uh, an event-triggered email that's time-sensitive. Yeah. Okay. With that, uh, Matt, can you maybe tell us a bit more about what changes were made to our templates and perhaps, you know, more importantly, why we, we made them? Sure. So, I mean, to start with the why... Um, over time, Postmark's been running around a little while now, and we've added more templates as we've built out new features that have required them. Um, and we kind of got to a point where some of the stuff we were sending out was was excellent. Some of the stuff wasn't quite great, and then some of the stuff was just plain outdated. Um, so, we, for instance, we had some emails where we were sending out plain text versions, but there was no HTML equivalent. Um, some emails, it was the other way around. We were sending out HTML emails, but we weren't including a plain text version. Um, some of them, like there wasn't a clear call to action or, or we'd, um, we needed to update some copy to make things clearer. Um, so there was a lot of tidying up. And the actual templates that we use as well, um, we changed our style about 12, 18 months ago and, and switched to a newer, a newer template layout for a lot of the stuff we were sending. But some of our... Uh, older emails, so like our welcome email and our sign-up email, for example, we're still using quite a, an old template. Um, and a lot of the the design motifs in that, we don't actually have it even in the web app anymore. So it kind of made sense to update them, bring everything in line. So it was all consistent. So if you get an email from Postmark as a customer, it's going to look the same across the board and you're not going to get one a welcome email that looks one in one style and then uh, like a reset password email or something that looks completely different. So just making sure that that's consistent for customers as well was a big point. Okay. So it sounds like there's kind of a smattering of, of emails that were in different states. And that, that, that was one of the key things we want to do is kind of tighten the branding, bring all the templates to the same level of, of clarity and, and design. Um, so you and I assume our product manager probably talk through this project, discuss some of the timing and the priorities, and agreed that it was worth um, investing some time on this project. Walk us through how you approach a design request like this, Matt, and, and maybe where, where did you start? Sure. So, um, I mean, to start with, we've been collecting a lot of things that we'd like to, to do to improve these emails for, 
the past couple of years, really. Um, and, and sort of adding them all and noting them down. And it got to a point where luckily we had a break in the, the regular project work that I was, that I had. And it just seemed like it was the right time to tackle this. Um, so fortunately we were able to, to carve out the time for it and prioritize it so that it was something we could work on. Um, my first thing that I'll always do is just inventory what we've got. So it was a matter of just going through all of the emails that we have figuring out what state they were. Are we sending both HTML and plain text versions? Are they using the latest like design style? Is everything up to date? Are we doing in our own emails what we always ask our customers to do? We're, we're really great. We've got like loads of guides on our website for like how to create a great welcome email. And are we actually living those recommendations in the stuff that we send out? So it was, it was a matter of sort of going through everything we've got and trying to identify ways that we could improve them. And then merging that in with all the the ideas and that have come up over the past couple of years and that we've noted down and the smaller things that we've said we don't have time for this right now, but we really want to get to it at some point. And 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 with that inventory process, is there anything specifically that you like to use? Is it just a, a paper doc or or a Google Doc, or do we actually have some other tools that we rely on for that? Sure. So at my first port call was to basically just create a big table. So I think it was in a paper doc and just list out all the templates we've got, like what versions do we currently send out? What style is it? Does this need updating? Does it not? Like what are the main issues? Um, and then I'll go through and take screenshots of all the emails that we're sending as well. And the way that I approached that was basically just to create a, a sketch file and dump all the, the screenshots in there. And then we use abstract on, on the design team for getting design feedback. So I just put them all into a sketch file, set up a branch in abstract so I can keep track of all this work. And that's kind of gives me a, a starting off point so I can run through the, the sort of visual of the templates and, and figure out what's working, what's not, and, and what we need to update. Okay. And for just a you know, non-designer like me, I'm not as familiar. I'm familiar with sketch, but not, not abstract. Can you just speak to a little bit more about kind of what abstract is typically used for? Sure. So abstract is, it's a design feedback tool, but it, you can think of it kind of like Git for designers. Okay. So it allows you to, to basically work on design files, but keep versions of them. And you can do things that you would do in Git, like creating branches when you're working on a particular task or project. Um, so we can do all that and main, maintain sort of a master version of our designs, but then also branch out. So whilst we're experimenting on stuff, that's not affecting what any of the other designers on the team are doing. Cool. That's helpful. So it sounds like big table sketch file for all the, the images or the screenshots that you captured and then using abstract to, to collect feedback from the team. Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. And Derek, would you approach a design request in the same way as, as Matt and perhaps more broadly, is there really a kind of right or wrong way to approach this sort of request? Yeah, I think, um, I, I definitely would approach it in the same way. Um, it's really important whenever you're taking on a set of existing emails to it's, it's important to kind of go through them all and inventory them uh, just so you can kind of get that bird's eye view of things so you can kind of spot those inconsistencies and just kind of get an idea of the visual elements that um, that the emails are kind of comprised of um, so you can kind of break things down into smaller bits but the approach would probably be my approach would probably be a little different as opposed to if I was starting from scratch um, but I think that's I think Matt's um, approach for taking over an existing set of emails is definitely the right way to do it. Well, I'd actually, I'd actually love to, to just touch on that a little bit. I mean, I, I certainly recognize that our focus here today is to talk about our redesign, but 
maybe you could just touch on, you know, if, if this was from scratch, right? If we're a new business and we haven't actually built any templates yet, um, w- what would be different about the, the approach? Yeah. So for, for me, at least, um, if I was starting from scratch, uh, first, you need to kind of identify the emails that your application is going to be sending out. So um, you have things like welcome emails, password resets, um, just kind of understanding those things, um, just kind of having like a scope for your project. And then, and then I would probably start with uh, focusing on the content first. And that's just, just opening up my text editor and just thinking about what I'm going to say, because emails, ultimately, they are comprised of words and um, and it's important that you know what you're going to communicate to your users um, before you actually figure out what it's going to look like. Uh, and then from there, um, just get some feedback from the team. And then um, I would go into just kind of building out that visual language um, in Sketch, just figuring out what certain components are going to look like, uh, the overall look and feel of the layout, et cetera. And then um, from there, I'd kind of uh, pop that content in and, and um, build on that. So Cool. Perhaps we could, I mean, it sounds to me like one of the key things, and uh, I think you both both touched on this really, is focusing on the content, right? The, the design is critical, but part of what informs the design is the content itself. Going back to uh, this project, Matt, maybe you could talk to us a little bit about how we make decisions about what information to include in these templates. Can you just walk me through some of your, your decision tree there? Absolutely. So at the end of the day, it always comes back to what's the customer's need. So we're sending this email for a reason. So if it's a password reset email, they've requested that because they've forgotten their password and there's going to be a link in that email for them to go and reset it. So that's always going to be the key action for the the email. And we we need to keep that front and center the whole way through. Um, And that informs what the copy is going to be. It informs like what the main call to action is how we display that like the whole email revolves around what it's its first purposes so i think that the most important thing to begin with is to identify that that single purpose for for each of the emails that you're sending and that's especially important for transactional because in most cases a transactional email is only going to have one main call to action that we're in order to preserve that flow because a lot of the time email is used either as a delivery mechanism for for a particular message in sort of an asynchronous manner. So for example, um, an invoice email would be a great example of this. Like say someone's subscription renewed, we send them an email with the invoice. They didn't request that straight away, but it's still an event triggered email because it was triggered by like the, the renewal of their subscription. And that the key point of that email is one to notify them that their subscriptions renewed successfully, but also to deliver their invoice. So if they have to send that onto like an accounting department or, or whatever, they have that. So it's really key that we make that really easy for them to get a hold of. Um, whereas a password reset or, or say a user invitation email where they, they need to click a link to activate their account, it's always going to be that link that needs to be the focus. So that's that's the first thing to, to start with and then sort of build out from there. All right. So with that, it sounds like the customer need... Um, is ultimately the driver behind, you know, the content decisions, the design, call to action. Perhaps we could talk about how that all comes together in layouts. Derek or Matt, do you guys want to speak to how we think about layouts as we are trying to fulfill that customer need? Sure, Derek. Do you want to handle that one? You literally just worked on a layout feature. So. <laughs> um, yeah, just in terms of layout design, I, I guess I'll touch on um, 
on my preference for layout design, um, aside from just the content, approaching it from the content first. But for me, I just, when it comes to emails, I always try to just keep it really simple. Um, you have a lot of email clients that you need to be compatible with. So it's super important that you try to kind of reduce the amount of columns that you have. I usually generally try to um, stick with a single column layout. Um, and I think that really helps when it comes to mobile as well. Um, a lot of times you, you kind of approach things from a mobile first approach. So you kind of consider the simplest form factor first. And that's generally always a single column layout. You don't want to stack things side by side. You want to have a clear call to action and just a good flow for your email. So that's generally how I would approach it is just to keep it simple. So let's talk about this mobile first approach. It sounds like uh, the single column is your preferred method. Matt, I should ask, is, is, that, is that the same for you? Yeah, and I'd agree with that. I think keeping it as simple as possible so that you're, that whatever action that the customer needs to do with that email is really, really clear. And they're not digging through tons and tons of stuff to find like the button that they need to click. Um, and the single column layout is almost always the best solution for that. Okay. And I want to just touch on a, an interesting stat on this, this mobile first approach. Um, according to the, the latest U.S. Uh, consumer device preference report from Movable Inc., um, 66% of all emails in the U.S. are now opened uh, or read on smartphones or tablets. Um, with this increasing trend towards mobile, uh, clearly you guys are thinking about uh, this, how, how we're designing our layouts to, to, to be compatible on mobile devices, but can maybe one of you guys tell us a little bit more about how we kind of ensure that our final templates are in fact fully optimized for mobile? Sure. So we use a bunch of different tools um, for testing that in addition to sort of manually testing, so we're sending emails to ourselves and looking at it on our phones and stuff. Um, but we also use Litmus, which allows us to to test an email and see how it, it appears on a whole bunch of different devices in different email clients as well. So um, that's a really, really valuable tool for making sure that the, the emails that we design actually work for everybody. Um, and that there's a consistent experience there for everybody that receives them. Yeah, I don't know what we used to do before tools like Litmus. I think there's a lot of guesswork involved with building emails. Um, but now with, with tools like this, um, I think it definitely raises the quality bar. Uh, for emails because there's really no excuses why something should look wrong in uh, another email client. And sometimes it feels like stepping into a time machine, right? Like <laughs> you're trying yeah. to support super old versions of Outlook. Um, and so it's like tools like this are amazing. So how, so how does that work? I mean, you basically just have the, the email, the HTML, the email, and you just drop it in the litmus and then it, it basically just shows you how the email will render across different devices or mail clients. Yeah, so um, there's a couple way, ways it works. Um, one, you can you can send them send an email to one of their addresses from your email service provider, um, and they'll read that email, and then they will they'll load it uh, using the virtual machine into on a bunch of environments and different email clients, and they'll take a screenshot of it, and then they'll post the screenshot on their web app, and then you can kind of go through and preview and approve things or make notes of what needs to be fixed. Um, another way is you can just literally just copy and paste your email markup into into their app and they'll just generate a bunch of, of email client previews for you. That's awesome. It sounds like a major time saver for us, huh? 
definitely. Absolutely. I think they've got like a builder feature as well now. So you can go in and like edit it live as well. Yes. And oh, wow. Keeps like re rendering it. It's like the tools that we have now are so much better than like a few years ago, even. It's, yeah. it's come along a lot. That's remarkable. I mean, so with, with respect to tools, it sounds like we use Litmus for, for making sure that the emails are compatible with, with different devices and mail clients kind of moving back to, you know, our redesign, right. And, and kind of getting into the design phase. Um, are there specific tools that you guys like to rely on for, you know, mocking up templates? Sure. So um, pen and paper is a great one. If you're, <laughs> if you're designing a new email, like once you've got an idea of what content you want and what the main action is going to be, like you can't beat pen, pen and paper for, for wireframes as to how something's going to work. And then depending on what the email is, for this particular project, a lot of it was either redesigns of existing emails or adding in like counterpart versions, so like a HTML version or a plain text version. So I actually did a lot of the work straight in code. So um, just ran, got our Rails app set up locally and just dived into the code and, and sort of mocked things out there because a lot of it was already built out, so it kind of makes sense. Um, but sometimes like, if it's a new email, it, I might go into Sketch instead and design that in Sketch and then share that image through Abstract or, or whatever project management tool we're using at the time. Um, to get feedback on it. Sometimes that can be a lot quicker than going to code and building something out fully. Um, you can iterate on something a lot quicker in, in Sketch than you can in code in most cases. But it really depends on what what the email is and whether it's a redesign or a complete um, like new email from scratch as to what approach I'll take. Derek, do you rely on some of the same uh, tool sets? Yeah, I would say my approach is probably exactly how Matt does it. Um, with one exception is I, I also, instead of pen and paper, I generate like a text editor <laughs> before that. Um, I just, because I think about the emails kind of in a linear flow, um, I just like to kind of structure things out in that way. Um, depending upon if there's a lot of visuals or actions, I'll go to pen and paper, but sometimes I'll just jump straight to, to sketch or... I'll jump straight to code if there's already an existing um, development framework that we're that we've got. So. so it sounds like there's really not a, a great substitute for for good old pen and paper or, or basic text file. Yeah. Do you ever use that? You've got an iPad Pro, right, Derek? Do you ever use like sketching on that instead of pen and paper? No, I actually don't. <laughs> I don't like for some reason. I haven't. Uh, <laughs> it hasn't stuck with me with sketching interfaces and, and emails. For some reason, I just don't. It feels a little slower to me, even though there's tools to help you build shapes and stuff. I would just prefer to just go straight to real paper for some reason. But um, when it comes to actually doing illustrations and stuff, I prefer to use the iPad. But for sketching interfaces, I don't, I just hasn't stuck with me yet. So that's interesting. Cool. So we obviously starting with pen and paper uh, or text edit in Derek's case. Um, I want to touch a little bit more on the the concept of you know where we do the final design. It sounds like um, you know some designs, some designers prefer to create their designs in in a tool like Sketch, right, Matt? That was that's kind of what you used. Um, and then there's certainly other designers, I guess, that prefer to to design them in the browser. Can you guys speak to and maybe maybe Matt, starting with you? Can you tell tell us about the the pros and cons of each approach and perhaps, you know, which situations would kind of dictate which of those two 
methods you would go with? Sure. So I think Derek touched on this as well, but like at the minute with Postmark, we've got a pretty established design like framework for, for emails. So we've got most of the layouts sort of played out. So it's really easy to go straight to code because a lot of this stuff's already built out. So we're really focusing more on content than we are on layout. Like we're, we're focusing on content and making sure that the, we're highlighting the appropriate call to action. Um, if it's a brand new product, like when I was in the agency world and we'd be designing stuff from completely from scratch, um, that's when it can be a lot more useful to use the, like a, a tool like Sketch because you're trying to get buy-in from various stakeholders. You've got client, you've got other people on your team that you need to get feedback from. And building out everything from scratch so you can go straight to code isn't always the most efficient way um, of doing that because it gets harder to iterate quickly on your designs. So using something like Sketch is really good for that because you're not investing as much time up front in that specific solution. And if you decide to go in a completely different direction, you've not spent a whole bunch of time that's now wasted. But yeah, in, if you've got an established design framework for, for what you're going to build and you can kind of build that email with pre-existing components, you work, you're focusing more on content and going straight to code and designing in the browser totally makes sense. Cool. And I guess touching on this, this concept of you know, designing and kind of on local environments or in the browser, Derek, you, you had actually recently expanded on a Hack Week idea and launched a command line interface for Postmark. Um, can you tell us more about where that idea came from and why it's significant? Yeah, definitely. Uh, Andrew, uh, who's one of our engineers here at Postmark, he uh, tossed around the idea of building a command line tool so that you can upload your templates to Postmark and even download them to your desktop with a simple terminal command. Uh, he didn't have the bandwidth to work on it, so I decided to build a proof of concept during one of our hack weeks. The cool thing about our command line tool is that you can use your own code editor to build your templates. Uh, you can store them in GitHub. Uh, you can even automate your workflow using continuous integration tools like Travis or CircleCI. Uh, whereas before this, uh, you're pretty limited to just using the template editor in our web app. And writing code in the browser uh, usually has pretty limited functionality and it can be a bit frustrating. Um, so the command line tool is nice because you can, you can simply just use the development tools that you're comfortable with. Cool. So, and you mentioned there are some limitations to writing code in the browser. Can you, you maybe just elaborate on that a little bit? Yeah. So a lot of times when you're writing code um, directly into a template editor in the browser, it's really dependent on how it's been implemented by whoever built the editor. Um, a lot of times you're, you've got like a million other tabs open, so you're dealing with other distractions in your browser as well. So performance... <laughs> Performance is a little limited there as well. Um, you can't, and a lot of times those templates, they're not sitting on your desktop, so you can't actually interact with them um, locally or use the tools that you're comfortable with. So you're, you're kind of forced into using the tools that have been provided for you by whoever the, your email service provider is. So it sounds like using, by, by, by using this, um, this command line interface for Postmark, you're able to utilize your own code editor that you're that you're familiar and, and used to. Matt, can you maybe speak to your preferences with respect to, you know, kind of where you actually modify and edit the code? Sure. So I I'm I'm pretty 
like Adam and I, I always like to do things locally. So I like to use the text editor. I use VS Code for most things. Um, and I'm comfortable there. I know all the shortcuts. Like that's where I want to do my development. So if I'm writing code in, in like a, an editor in the browser, I find that I'm not as productive because I don't have all the tools that I'm used to there. Um, so for sure, I mean, the, the CLI tool has been massive because being able to sync your templates down to your local machine so you can use the tools you're already comfortable with is so much better than, than trying to use the, something that you're not. I mean, the, I should say that the template editor in Postmark's not too bad. It's all right, but it's still <laughs> it's alien if you're not used to using it. So yeah, for sure, I always prefer to do things locally if I can. That's awesome. And I guess in that same vein, you know, with respect to, you know, we're, we're in ESP, right? And there are plenty of other ESPs um, and kind of each ESP offers their own specific design framework. You know, we, we built an open source template toolkit called MailMason. Uh, and, I, and I believe that was to kind of help. Uh, it's a tool that we use to, to build our own templates. Derek, do you want to tell us a little bit about MailMason and why we decided to build it and why you might want to actually use it? Yeah, so sure. Um, a few years ago, we open sourced MailMason as like a, a workflow for developing email templates. Um, it's a complete tool set that uses Node.js and Grunt.js um, that lets you build templates using um, tools like SAS, um, to, which is a precompiler for your CSS, and handlebars for your templates. If you've built templates before, you'll know that trying to follow the best practices can get pretty tedious, and sometimes you want to rip your hair out. So, um, so MailMason uh, automates things like uh, inlining your CSS for you automatically, um, which is uh, best practice if you want to have email client compatibility across across a bunch of devices and stuff. And then um, it automatically generates text versions for your emails, and it even you can even quickly like send test emails to the inbox or quickly to Litmus from your own uh, desktop. So basically, this kind of enables, it's used in conjunction with the CLI tool, so you can use it with your postmark templates, but um, ultimately, it just gives you more power and control over, over your templates, and you can also reuse certain bits. So going back to how we use handlebars for templates in MailMason, is you can use things like partials, which are essentially like reusable components. So if you have a button component, you don't need to you can have one button component and you can reuse that same button, that same markup across all of your email templates. And you don't have to, if you have to make a change to that button, you only make a change to one partials file. And so it just really makes the maintenance a lot easier and, and saves you a lot of time down the road. And I mean, it certainly sounds like, you know, using a, a tool like MailMason in conjunction with perhaps, you know, CLI is really powerful. I mean, Matt, when, when we actually went through this redesign process for our templates, did we, did we utilize any of these, these tools? Yeah, so we didn't actually use MailMason for th this project to redesign our transaction emails. But about two years ago, um, not long after I started, we did a big redesign of all the, um, our email newsletters. And one of the, thing, the challenges of Wildbit is because we have multiple products, um, we we're struggling to maintain email templates for all of our different products because we, we have newsletters that go out for a while, but at the time we, we still own DeployBot. So we were sending out newsletters for DeployBot. We had Postmark, we had Beanstalk, and we had Conveyor was just emerging as well. So we needed to, a solution there. So 
it was getting a bit of a nightmare to manage all these templates. And we actually used MailMason with a slight modification um, and designed uh, basically a system of components for creating newsletters. So we had like header component components, featured article components, um, text blocks, like call to actions, all these different things that we could use to construct a, a newsletter. Um, and then created one centralized configuration, which basically contained all the branding for each of our products and for Wildbit, so that with one command, we could generate all of the email templates we needed for, for across all of the different products. So we oh, were wow. no longer maintaining multiple different email templates. We had one template and we just kind of compiled it down and then it got branded as whatever the product was. Um, and we used Campaign Monitor actually to, for a lot of our newsletters. And so we integrated it with all their templating language as well. So you can just go into the campaign monitor editor and literally like build your email from the components. So there's a lot of control to create those emails without having to go to code as well, which has been really, really helpful for people. And Mail Mason like was instrumental to that. We definitely wouldn't have been able to do it if it wasn't for, for Mail Mason. So wow. it was super, super useful there. It sounds like MailMason actually is, is something that can be compatible with a, really a, a number of different providers. Is that right? Absolutely. Yeah, it's, it's, it's not Postmark specific, so you can use it for anything. Whether you use one of our competitors or whether you use Postmark, you can, you can use MailMason. Wow, cool. Yeah, and just, to, just to, for our listeners, um, MailMason is a totally open source tool. So if you're, if you're looking to manage a, a lot of different templates across uh, a single product or multiple products, um, definitely check it out. Uh, I'll include the link in the resources here for this podcast. All right. Well, let's let's kind of shift gears here. Uh, I want to get back to the actual designing of the emails themselves. We all have different opinions on f- fonts. Can you guys talk to us a little bit about your uh, your your font preferences, and maybe we could start with what we what we use for our transactional email templates. Sure. So our transactional email templates. You put me on the spot because I can't remember what font <laughs> we use, but it's not a web font. It's a system font. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I think it's just Helvetica which we use for, yeah. because that's kind of our brand style. That and Rockwell, um, but I don't think we have Rockwell anywhere. Mm-hmm. Derek, you could talk about Mailmason because you just changed the web font yeah. like, to a, a different one. Okay, yeah. So um, with regards to the Mailmason, we're actually going to be releasing an update soon that um, integrates with Google Fonts. Um, so I just kind of went through the fonts there and I was trying to find um, something to kind of give it a little more personality. So I went with. Um, Munito Sans, I think that's how you pronounce it. So my my preference for integrating fonts is Google. Um, I think they have a really fast and reliable service to integrate with. Um, but web fonts can be a little tricky because it's only supported on more modern email clients. So it's important that you have what they call a, a font stack, which um, basically lets you first you delegate a your custom font, and then behind that you can set up your system safe fonts, which means which will pull from um, the default fonts on that uh, device. So sometimes if a email client doesn't support that custom font, it's going to fall back to Arial, um, Helvetica, or, or whatever is supported there. So it's a little tricky to make it compatible in all browsers. So there's some, some little hacks that you have to do, um, especially for older versions of Outlook. But our hope is that with MailMason, this will be a lot easier. Cool. And, and just for those folks who may or may not give MailMason a shot, what are the, some of the considerations for 
you know, making sure that you guys have fallback fonts or that the, the font will be supported. Yeah. So um, I think the general approach that most people use, and this is what I use for MailMason, is um, <laughs> mostly dealing with um, some weird quirks with older versions of Outlook. It's almost like a vendor prefix syntax that lets you target um, Microsoft um, clients specifically, um, where I create a fallback CSS class that has just the default um, fonts for Windows devices. And what I end up doing is I, I wrap most of the text elements with this CSS class so that, um, when, that um, when that custom font won't load, it will end up kind of inheriting that CSS class that's on the, the HTML element so that you'll... Um, damn, there's one thing I totally forgot to mention is that... Ah, oh, damn. Uh, so <laughs> don't put this on the podcast. I'm just kind of thinking that... <laughs> This is how complicated emails are. Yeah, this, I'm just kind of <laughs> thinking out loud because it's not that. It's really not that straightforward. Because um, is is the solution to to just use so a tool happy. like MailMason since it's going to do this for you? Is that really what we're getting at here? Yes, yes, <laughs> so yeah, you have to. But uh, the solution's not that straightforward, honestly, because because um, even if you have like a, a font stack, like Outlook ignores it, and they're just going to default to Times New Roman if you don't do this hack. So it's not like. You can't you I don't know. So it's kind of hard to explain. Um, email clients are like web browsers in like the nineties. <laughs> but everybody was doing their own thing and like that's kind of like what email uh, they've got a lot better, but like when you're still supporting older email clients, that's kind of what it's like. You do all these weird hacks for like one specific email client that was released ten years ago. So email is really, really complicated, basically, is what you guys are, are getting at. Yeah, I don't know if I can explain this in a coherent way. Um, All right, well, maybe, maybe, maybe we can just shift gears here. Uh, and perhaps, you know, speaking of kind of weird things in the, in the world of email, we put some really beautiful illustrations in some of these new emails that we redesigned. Matt, are there any important things to keep in mind? Sure. So we, we decided to add illustrations to three of our emails. Um, and the reason we did it was because we wanted to enhance that first customer experience with, that people have with us. So we put it in the welcome email, uh, our sign-up email, and then the user invitation email because we wanted that first email that people get from us to be just a little bit special and to represent like the Postmark brand a little bit beyond like our standard templates. Um, but there's for sure there's some considerations that you have to make there. One is, I mean, you quoted the mobile stat earlier of 66% of emails being read on mobile or, or whatever now. Um, and whilst mobile networks have got a lot better, you've still got to consider like bandwidth. And if you're adding like this massive like, animation or something to your, to your email, that's going to take a long time to load. So you need to like keep that in mind. Because if that's not providing direct value in, it's kind of like indirectly helping to just make it feel nicer um, and more pleasant to the user, then that's probably, if someone's trying to load that on a really poor connection, you're actually just ending up providing a bad experience. So that's for sure one thing you need to be wary of. There's also some accessibility considerations as well, like making sure that you've got your alt tags on these things and that they're descriptive so people can like, understand these if they're, they're using an assistive technology. And a, a whole bunch of other things. One other thing you got to worry about is like trying to make sure you don't disrupt the flow of the email too much. Like it's really easy to add some massive, nice illustration that looks beautiful, but like if that's not actually helping the customer get to the key action, you got to 
decide like is it worth having that like huge illustration or should we use something that's a bit more small like a bit smaller um that still helps to convey that like, overall feel but is not getting in the way of that the customer getting to the, the whatever specific action it is in the email so for sure i think they they help i think there's a there's a big trend at the moment to use a lot of animation in email and start getting a little bit more like interactive and some of that stuff's great, but some of it just gets in the way. So it's it, it's worth using, but using when it's appropriate and not just adding it everywhere. Interesting. So it really, kind of going back to the, the beginning here, it really boils down to what does the customer need and does this illustration or does this image support that need or make that that message more clear to the customer? Mm-hmm. Exactly. And that that is like design in a nutshell everything comes back to what the customer need is and how we can satisfy that appropriately. Cool. And how about, how about links? Uh, I know that's always uh, kind of a confusing topic for, for some of our, our customers. Um, Derek, do you want to speak about, you know, using links in emails, the links themselves, these are often, you know, pretty critical junctures in a, in a customer journey. Can we talk about maybe secure, not secure, you know, what are designers need to be aware of when using links in email? Yeah, so in terms of secure versus non-secure, I think it's always important that you know where your link is going to and that um, it's something that's going to essentially live almost forever um, because a lot of times emails end up sitting in the inbox for quite some time and people might end up opening it. It can be months down the line sometimes um, and clicking on something. You need to make sure that that link is almost going to be, is essentially permanent um, and that it's going to have a permanent home there. So. Like obviously, like secure is better, but sometimes you don't really have the choice. Um, but I don't know. Do you have any advice, Matt? I guess for plain text emails, it's probably a little bit more appropriate. And email is widely abused anyway, um, because whether it's phishing scams or whatever, like it's really easy to to make an email look like it's come from a legitimate source and it not be, and people get caught out going to like dodgy login forms or whatever. I think with plain text email, it gets harder to do that because you can see the URL. So like, if you're linking somewhere, if you put a URL in a plain text email, people are going to see the domain on that. So that's kind of important to try and preserve that domain. Now, it gets more complicated if you're using something like link tracking um, on the email because then it's going to replace that link with something with, with like a shortened URL usually, usually that's not going to be as recognizable to, to customers. So that's always a consideration there. And in Postmark, for example, we allow you to... Um, enable or disable link tracking based on whether it's a HTML email or a plain text. So if you want to send the regular link in the plain text version, then you can do and then use the the link tracked link in, in the HTML version where it's not as visible to customers. But for sure, like I always think that the customer needs to be confident that when they click on that link, it's going to take them to where they need to go in a legitimate place. So Yeah. One of the things we also do with um, our open source starter templates is um, with the star templates that have a call to action, so for like account activations, um, usually have a button, right? Um, but it's also one of the best practices to also include just a, just include the raw URL um, somewhere below that, just in case for whatever reason, um, for accessibility or if they're using a crappy email client, the button doesn't load or the link doesn't work. Um, there's a raw URL at the bottom of the URL with the call to action so that they can easily click on that. So that's one of the things that we that we do with our star templates. Mm-hmm. Another thing to look out for in the in plain text emails is 
a lot of people um, will rely, a lot of email service providers will automatically generate a plain text version from your HTML version, which is less work for the developer, which is great. But the problem is that if your HTML version's got a bunch of like fancy header with like links off to your homepage or wherever, and when that then gets translated to a plain text version, you're going to have all these links at the top of that plain text version that don't really make an awful lot of sense to the customer. So it's really important that you actually do the extra work and create that plain text version yourself because then you have full control over the content and you can make sure that like none of that stuff adds in there. So the only links that are in that email, the only URLs in the, the actual copy of that email are for the key actions that you want. Like so you you ideally you'd have you'd just start it with normal content like plain text and then you'd have your your whatever your call to action is in the URL to that and then maybe you have the URL to your homepage, like further down at the bottom, that you're not cluttering that email with a whole bunch of stuff because it's been automatically converted from your HTML version. So let's just touch on that. I mean, you know, HTML, plain text email, uh, we're talking a lot about how that relates to links and, and being mindful of how those links are going to be rendered. Why are plain text emails such an important component when you're, you're sending transactional emails? Yeah, so um, it's pretty common for spam filters to flag your email if it doesn't have a text version. Um, so ultimately, having both an HTML and text version uh, should improve your your deliverability. And I think their thinking behind it um, is that a spammer is generally pretty lazy and they're not going to take the time to create a plain text version of their email. Um, and so they, by default, a lot of them end up flagging it. So in a lot of cases, it's better to just send a plain text only email as opposed to HTML only, right? Um, but but the best practice is to send what they call a multi-part email, which is both HTML and and plain. Another thing too is that um, sometimes um, some people simply prefer seeing a plain text email over HTML. Um, a lot of accessibility comes into play there. So some people configure their email clients to only see the text version, um, maybe because they might have visual impairment issues, or it's easier for their screen reader. Um, so accessibility is definitely something to consider there. I wonder if Apple Watch relies on the plain text version as well. Because like, you can read your emails on your Apple Watch, right? I wonder if they, they're doing some like automatic conversion of the HTML, or if it's just pulling the plain text version there. Yeah, that's a good point. Mm -hmm. Not that like everybody's reading their emails on their Apple Watch, like <laughs> on that tiny like inch square screen, but like. But then you I'm really want curious. to focus. You really want to focus on keeping it short. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, for sure. So maybe we can just touch on quickly the concept of email headers and footers. Are there any important design considerations there? So I mean, it, it's similar, really, when if you're designing a web page in that it needs to convey your brand. So if you're, if you're creating like a transactional email template, for example, and you, you, you're worrying about your headers and footers, like you don't want to overstock them just like you wouldn't overstock your header on like a web page. Um, you're probably going to want to put your logo there. You're going to want to use your brand colors, but you don't want to go too over the top with it. Um, footers are a really great place for delight. So I think in our, our newsletters, we, we have like a, a section in the footer which we can update every time and just like add a little message or something fun. Um, and a lot of customers will just, they won't even see it. They won't notice it. But it, it's a good place because you're not disrupting the flow of the email. You're not disrupting the customer getting to the key action. But like if they notice it, it might give them a smile. So I always like to try and add a little bit of delight in, in the footer. 
All right. Well, so let's let's. So we've talked about a lot of the components of the email. I would like to to talk about um, once you have a really good working prototype. What does the process look like to get buy-in from the rest of the team? It sounds like abstract maybe is a good tool for this. Are there other are there other mechanisms or or tools that you guys rely on to get that buy-in? Sure. So I mean, it really depends what tools your 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 team is using anyway for getting design feedback, but. It could be something as simple as like forwarding that email around to a bunch of people and getting their feedback on it so they can see it in their email client and and pick up their phone and see it, read it on their phone as well and kind of get the real experience of it. Um, or maybe you're just taking screenshots and sharing it in something like abstract or or on like a, a Dropbox paper doc or, or whatever really mechanism you use to get feedback. Um, it doesn't really matter that much. It, it also depends on what level of feedback you're wanting. Because mm-hmm. if, you're, if you're looking for feedback on like content, actually sending the final email is probably not the best thing to do. If you want someone to focus on giving content feedback, send them a, a document with just the content in. Because then they're not distracted about all the extras, all the like visuals. You just If you just want to know whether the copy is good or not, um, don't send them everything else. <laughs> Whereas if you want... like feedback on the visual design of it, use a tool like abstract or something where they can literally point to like this pixel and add a comment and say like, hey, this thing should be like blue, not red. It it just kind of depends on what what level of feedback you're looking and um as to what approach you want to use there. All right. So you get buy-in from the team. Everybody's good to go. The the templates look great. Let's talk about launch or moving them into production. Um, I know I've put together marketing campaigns in years past. And when that moment comes to click the send button, it's it's always a bit of a panic. I always found myself asking, did I do everything right? When making changes to transactional email and then moving them into production, what are some of the steps that we go through to ensure that things are locked tight? So... I would say run it through Litmus. Yeah, I mean, you can't you can't go wrong um, with Litmus. They have a um, a checklist feature that will um, that will do a bunch of checks to your to your email. And so, what they can warn you about is are things like broken links, um, whether your subject line or content sounds spammy, and whether you're gonna you have a high possibility of being flagged by spam filters. Um, just a bunch of other tools that'll help you increase engagement and catch. Um, simple mistakes but i can't i can't stress how valuable that tool is when it comes to sending emails is anything else anything else well we're really lucky because we have igor who's our our qa guy on postmark who's just a absolute like wizard with this stuff so whether it's an email change or like a a change to the application or whatever it is like everything goes through Igor before it's released so and he will if there's a problem he will find it like it's very rare anything gets past him. Um, so I understand not all teams have that luxury, but it, it's super useful for us to have like a real human test that out and make sure that everything's working. Yeah. It's also, aside from just the email content itself, um, when you're looking at transactional email, it's important to also test how the email gets triggered and to trigger that scenario within your web app. Um, because there's often been times where, where I've triggered it incorrectly or or whatever, and it doesn't fire off like I thought it would, even though the email content looked great when I was previewing it, but um, the application actually wasn't sending it. So it's important to actually test beyond the actual design of the email. Cool. So we, we published these templates, Matt, I believe it was like close to like a month ago. How do we go about 
monitoring and, and measuring uh, the efficacy of, of these design changes? Are there specific metrics or, or things that we that we keep tabs on? Sure. So, I mean, it depends what the change is, but in, in these templates, for example, um, some of them we changed the call to actions a little bit. So there was a couple of templates where we were kind of giving the, the customer a few different options and weren't really adding like the preferred option in, in the design. Um, and, and all things like that, you can use tools like link tracking and, and measure engagement. Like are, are your customers actually doing the action that this email is being sent to them for? You can measure open rates and things as well. It, it, it kind of depends on what, what motivated you to change that email. So because we changed so many in this update, like each one has its own different goal behind why and and trigger behind why we actually touched it and why we wanted to to update it. But yes, like monitoring call to actions is great. Monitoring open rates is great. Also monitoring like spam notifications. Um, so like, have you changed some content is, and it now is a bunch of those emails going to spam. Um, that's something you need to keep an eye on. Uh, yeah, it's, it's kind of all the. What would you agree, Derek? Is there anything you can add to that? Yeah, uh, yeah. To add to that, I think it just really depends on the goals of the organization and um, like the particular email, right? And so, I think a good example is um, recently we released some improvements to our password reset emails to clear up some confusion with our customers. Um, and our key metric was to see if this had a significant reduction in customer support requests, and and so far it seemed to work. Um, so that confusion was kind of resulting in higher customer load because people were confused about uh, certain things. Um, but yeah, just to add on to what Matt said, with transactional, generally, it's important to keep tabs on your open rates. Um, since recipients often expect these emails, uh, you should have pretty decent open rates. So, so if you have low rates then, and people aren't reading um, triggered emails, then maybe something's wrong. And um, yeah, and it's just if there's a call to action in your email, you can use tools like click tracking to see whether people are interacting with it. All right, well, guys, I feel like we've touched on a lot of really awesome topics today. Um, I want to just end with some takeaways. Derek, are there some key takeaways that um, you'd like to leave us with? Yeah, so I think the key takeaway is when you start um, on designing a particular email that you need to start with the content first. Um, so that means just opening up your text editor and figuring out what you're trying to say. Um, emails are words, and you just need to know what you're, you're communicating to users um, before you figure out how it's supposed to look. Um, and yeah, another one of those things is using Litmus to test your emails and email clients and just ensuring that um, you're not making silly mistakes. Matt, anything to add? Yeah, always always keep your focus on the, what you want the customer to do with that email as well. Like, Don't let yourself get carried away with doing what's trendy with new animations or something like that and, and take your eye off. Like, why, why are you sending this email in the first place and what do you want the customer to do with it? All right, well, I think we're going to wrap up this episode. Matt and Derek, thank you both so much for being with us today. Uh, it was wonderful to have you guys. Thanks, Mark. It's been really fun. And to our listeners, thank you for joining us today for this episode of Talking Email with Postmark. If you enjoyed the episode, please leave us a review on iTunes and subscribe to receive updates on all future episodes. 
And be sure to check out the resources section for this episode, where you'll find useful tools and helpful articles on transactional email design. Lastly, if you're ever looking for design advice on your transactional email templates, be sure to reach out to us at support at postmarkapp.com, and we'd be more than happy to help. See you soon.